Good morning. Uh, as you know, Come and Reason Ministries is in partnership with HeartWise Ministries for our TV program that broadcasts on Thursday. And uh, we needed a, a, a piece of equipment that cost it $10,000 uh, in order to encode the signal to get it up to the satellite. And because of your generosity, we, Come and Reason was able to purchase that piece of equipment. And starting October 4, the, uh, the signal will now go nationwide on WTNB and My Family Life uh, TV uh, each week. And we are in negotiations with a couple of other networks to get that up. Uh, shortly on their networks as well. So uh, keep that ministry in your prayer as well. Let's uh, go ahead and begin with with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. Um, As we uh, come before you, there are members of our class who are ill, sick, struggling with uh, various uh, problems. Uh, We pray that your uh, healing hand will be upon them in accordance with your will. We have other members and family who are struggling with grief and loss, and we pray that you will uh, comfort them and help them find your grace and in the hope of uh, an eternity future um, where um, all the suffering and pain will be gone. We pray that you will enlighten us today as we study, that uh, we will come nearer to you and nearer to the principles upon which you have designed your universe to, to run. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are starting a new quarterly today, as you know, um, Growing in Christ uh, is the name of the quarterly. And as we, before we get to the first lesson, let's look at the introduction to the quarterly. And the first paragraph of the introduction says, everyone believes in something, even those who claim to believe in nothing or in Uh, or in nothing absolute, still believe in something, in this case, their relativism. Beliefs are important because they greatly impact how we live. For some Christians, however, more important than belief or behavior is belonging a sense of community. Yet community must be based on shared beliefs, shared goals, and common concerns. Any thoughts about that? Everyone believes something. One of my favorite sayings is, you know, we have power over what we believe, but what we believe holds power over us, power to heal or power to destroy. And you've heard of the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. Placebo effect, if you believe uh, a, a pill has got some benefit to you and, and you take it, then you get actual positive changes in you. And we can document in the brain, you get positive brain changes when you believe uh, you've taken something that's going to help you. The nocebo effect is just the opposite. When you believe you've been cursed or you believe you've taken something that's harmful, then your brain has negative changes and negative um, uh, uh, circuits fire and you get more anxiety and stress and, and negative things happen. Satan has power, the scripture talks about his power. What is his power? The power of lies. Power of lies. The power to get you to believe a lie. Just imagine if you're in a healthy marriage and somebody lies to you and tells you your spouse is cheating. But your spouse isn't. What happens inside you if you believe the lie? Well, something inside of you change if you believe your your spouse is cheating, even though they're not. Yes. Yes. Does it change for the better? No. And you see, this is the power of a lie. If you believe a lie, a lie can significantly change your, not just the way you feel. Think of the, think of the way your thoughts will go down different trails. Think of the choices you make and how your relationships will change based on that lie. This is the power of lies. Lies are destructive. Everyone is free to believe as they choose. Everyone's free to believe as they choose. This is one of the beauties of, um, uh, the principles of this country, that we give freedom of religion, freedom to believe as you choose. We want to respect each other's right. We don't want to coerce people into believing the way we believe. Yet, we shouldn't mistake the principle of freedom to believe as you choose with the idea that all beliefs are equally healthy. You see, many people get confused on this. Oh, we're free to believe whatever we want. Yes, you are. But not all beliefs are equally healthy. Not all beliefs are equally healthy. I have a patient who believes that smoking, as you've heard, I've told you this before, helps, helps her lungs work better. Now, she's, she's free to believe that. But it doesn't, it's not as healthy as believing smoking is damaging to the lungs. So we're free to believe whatever we want, but not all beliefs are equally healthy. And as the lesson says, everyone believes something. The question is, what are you believing or what do you believe? What kind of belief must one hold if they believe their God is honored when they riot and kill people because of a cartoon and a movie. Think, think what kind of belief you have to hold to believe that. Our God will be honored if we riot and kill. And, and, and take it even a step farther. How is it that your God is honored when you riot and kill somebody who had no, no knowledge that the movie was even made? 
we'll just pick somebody off the street. They don't know anything about the movie, had no hand in it, don't even know about it, but we'll kill them and, and honor our God. Does he see a problem in this? That's the way their God behaves. Yeah, this is the way their God behaves, she says. Yeah, this is the problem. Our beliefs change us. Next paragraph in our introduction. It says, for Seventh-day Adventists, people from almost every conceivable manifestation of humanity, what holds us together is our common fundamental beliefs, all 28 which are foundational for growing in Christ and living as a community of faith in in light of eternity. Is it our common beliefs that hold us together? Or maybe I should put it this way. Should it be our common beliefs that hold us together? It should be our love for one another. Margaret says it should be our love for one another and uh, for God. Keep that in mind as we come to the next paragraph. And we're going to come to the next paragraph. You can read ahead if you want. And... uh... But I think about things held together by common belief. Political parties are held together by common belief. Cults are held together by common belief. Should there... I don't think that common belief should not be a part of what holds us together, but I guess the thing is, should there be more? Should there be something more? I think what you said, love for God and love for each other... What about the Holy Spirit? Should the Holy Spirit be part of what holds us together? What about experience a renewed heart as an individual, that we have different motives and different principles? We have, we have the principle of love replacing the principle of fear and selfishness in the heart, and we have a commonality of heart alignment. Our hearts are aligned in the same direction, rather than just having same beliefs. What about a common purpose, common mission, common vision for what we're trying to achieve? Yeah. Can one hold to the 28 fundamental beliefs to the point that they would die for those beliefs yet still be God's enemy? Well, were there a group of people 2,000 years ago who held a common belief that they needed to get people on the cross off by sunset so they could you know, worship on Sabbath? Were they God's friends or enemies? Enemies. Yeah. So how is it, you should think this through, how is it we could have maybe the right doctrine and still be God's enemy. How could that happen? Have the right doctrine, still be God's enemy. We need the transformation of character of the Holy Spirit within our hearts and minds uh, and directing us into the will of God. So are you saying that believing a right doctrine does not necessarily equate with heart change? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think that through. That's huge, isn't it? You can hold right doctrine and not necessarily have a change of heart. There was a group of people 2,000 years ago who, for the first time in human history, since God gave his blueprint at Sinai, from all outward appearances, were keeping the blueprint. They were doing everything that the, that the instruction manual said they were to do. And what did we learn when Christ came and dwelt among them? Yeah, they were still his enemies. This was profound. Um, so let's read the next paragraph. How can we have right doctrine and still be his enemies? It says, some argue that what matters is our love of Christ and not doctrine. There you go, Margaret. I told you to read ahead. Okay. This sounds nice, but the Bible never separates a love for Christ from a love for the truth. We are told that by speaking the truth in love, we may grow into Christ. Knowing doctrine is not merely uh, accumulating correct data. Rather, knowing doctrine results in love for God. Furthermore, the Bible is concerned about sound doctrine because, among other things, it affects the ethical life. Um, Did you notice the shift as you were reading? Did you see the shift? They shifted from doctrine to truth. Did you notice that? It said, um, so I'll, I'll just ask the question, are these two statements equivalent? What matters is, uh, what matters is not your, uh, excuse me, how does this this say this? Yeah. Some argue that what matters is our love for Christ, not doctrine. Is that the same as some argue what matters is our love for Christ, not truth? Are those the same, same, same statements? No. Or how about the Bible never separates love for Christ from love for truth, or the Bible never separates love from Christ from love for doctrine. Are those the same? Depends on your doctrine. But see, that's the point, is it? Truth, by definition, is truth. Is all doctrine truth? There's lots of doctrines out there that, I mean, that's why there's so many denominations, right? Because there's, and all of them have doctrine. Yeah. Uh, By making doctrine stand, uh, what about this? We make doctrine stand alone 
We take them out. Let's, let's, let's just give some examples. What happens to man at death? We can take the Bible. We can get a whole bunch of texts together. We can make a doctrine and describe what we believe happens to man at death. Well, we get the Sabbath. We can make a doctrine about the Sabbath. We can get the Bible, take all our texts, make a Sabbath doctrine. And we make them stand alone. And we can proof text those doctrines. And we can challenge anybody to show me from the Bible we're wrong. That's one way to approach doctrine. If we do that, we have just separated and, 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 and cut the legs out from under the purpose of doctrine. What is the real purpose of doctrine? To do what? Tell us more about God. Thank you. To reveal to us God. And when we separate doctrine from its connection with a revelation of God's character... And it doesn't lead us, connect us directly to some aspect of God's character. Then we, we set up our, our, our pillars and, and we obstruct the growth in our knowledge of God. If doctrine is disconnected from God's character of love and made to stand alone, then uh, it and the organizations that do this become warped. Do you think that's, that's overstating it? If we separate doctrine from God's character of love. Does knowing doctrine necessarily result in loving God? That's, that's my point. Yes. Eric wants to know what is the difference between doctrine and truth? What's the difference between doctrine and truth? Doctrine is a teaching. Doctrine is a teaching. For instance, um, there are some that hold the doctrine that Jesus was a created being. Some hold that doctrine, that teaching, that he wasn't divine. There's some hold the doctrine there is no trinity. Some hold the doctrine there is a trinity. Now, these are mutually exclusive. There either is a trinity or there's not a trinity. Both of those doctrines can't be truth. Only one of them is truth. So the difference between doctrine and truth is, truth is always true. Doctrine may or may not be true. Now, the next paragraph, this is where it gets a little interesting. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a statement of 20 fundamental beliefs. These are not a creed in the sense that one could not expect any further development of truth expressed in them, or that even more teaching could be added. Uh, question. What is a creed? I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary. Here's the, here's the definition on online Webster's Online Dictionary. First, a, a brief authoritative formula of religious belief. 28 fundamental beliefs. Well, the second one. A set of fundamental beliefs. <laughs> so we have a set of fundamental beliefs, but we don't have a creed, but the definition of a creed is a set of fundamental beliefs. I got confused at that. Then I asked the question, okay, if a creed is a set of fundamental beliefs, why is it necessary to make this emphatic statement, we don't have a creed? Why would we do that? Has something changed in this organization from its inception to where we find ourselves now? that makes this statement necessary. Well, where we are now is we have a, a, a list of 28 fundamentals. But what, what was the position of our church regarding laying out a, a fundamental belief system, laying out a creed? Well, this is out of a book called Great Controversy. It was written about 1888. And it says, Rome withheld the Bible from the people and required all men to accept their, her teaching in its place. It was the work of the Reformation to restore to men the word of God. But it, is, but it is not too true, but is it, excuse me, I got the is and the it backwards, but is it not too true that in the churches of our time, men are taught to rest their faith upon their creed and the teachings of their church rather than on the scripture? Says Charles Beecher, uh, speaking of the Protestant churches, they shrink from any rude word against creeds with the same sensitivity any, any rude word against creeds. In other words, let's not criticize the fundamental beliefs. We can substitute the word fundamental beliefs for creed. They're synonyms here. Um, they, they shrink from the rude word against creeds with the same sensitivity with which those, those holy fathers would have shrunk from a rude word against the rising veneration of saints and martyrs which they were fostering. The Protestant evangelical denominations have so tied up one another's hands in their own that between them all, a man cannot become a preacher at all anywhere without accepting some book besides the Bible. There is nothing imaginary in the statement that the creed power is now beginning to prohibit the Bible as really as Rome did, though in a subtler way. Do you think creed power is prohibiting the Bible in our church? Hmm. Well, this is out of uh, First Elected Messages 416, written in 1885. It says, 
Remember, we're asking the question, this whole idea, why, why do we have to say this is not a creed? This is, so we don't deny the foundation. We, we can say we're still built on the same principles we, we were always built on. It says, when God's word is studied, comprehended, and obeyed, a bright light will be reflected to the world. New truths received and acted upon will bind us in strong bonds to Jesus. The Bible and the Bible alone is to be our creed, the sole bond of union. All who bow to the holy word will be in harmony. What did you hear? What did you hear? What's to be our creed? Word first. Not just God's word first. It says, "What is suggested uh, it, it, when the what is suggested happens when the Bible alone is our creed?" It's in the it's in the paragraph. It says, "When God's word is studied, comprehended, and obeyed, a bright light will be reflected to the world. New truths received and acted upon will bind us in strong bonds to Jesus." When we go to the Bible and the Bible alone, new truths are uncovered. New truths are applied. It results in transformation of character. We are bonded closer to Christ in bonds of love. I mean, something transformational happens when we, when we go to the scripture and use it as our primary. What is the concern about having creeds or fundamentals? Could it be that in a creed there are some beliefs that are man-made and not based on the Bible? Of course there could be, yes. Over here. I'm thinking that paragraph also indicates that there could be people from entirely different disparate denominations who use the scripture as their creed and they would be in total harmony. Oh, I like that too. See, when we, we, uh, we, there's, there's another good quote of it coming up that'll just support what you said. Yes. Adherence to the creed, at least in this discussion, implies a closing of the mind to additional or to outside beliefs or a variation of beliefs. And, and this is the danger that I hear is being suggested. What, what our organization, when it was founded, was supposed to be an organization that was not to set its roots down, plant, build up a dividing wall, say this is it. It was supposed to be a movement of, of, of growing in truth because God is infinite, we're finite, the, the, the boundary or the difference between his, his infinity and our, our finiteness is infinite. So there's always room for growth. And we're to be constantly moving forward as our minds are capable of assimilating more and more truth from on high. That's to be our position. We're never to kind of lock down. That's why I say in here all the time, let's never arrive at the truth. Because when you arrive, then there's no more truth to grow. And we start locking down, putting in our stakes, making our claims, defending the position against any new light that might come. We don't want to do that. Yes. But we have, we have finite resources. And so if we have educational institutions or churches that are with finite resources, we have to expend our resources on things that build up or maintain that church, that belief. So, you know, we, we have a requirement in some of our schools that they have to adhere to a certain creed. You see, we're talking now in, an insti- in a school institution, it's a little bit different. Because in a school institution, their focus and purpose is in a finite group of students to maintain order and decorum, for, um, create an atmosphere for proper scholastic education, achievement of degrees, and so forth, which is not quite the same mission of the church. So you, it's appropriate to, to have a certain harmony, a unity in a school body with a certain uh, set of guidelines to keep that flowing in that direction. But we're, we're talking in, in, in the idea of, of staking out these things are fundamentals, Meaning that these also, they ultimately start becoming a test of fellowship. Don't they? In fact, can somebody get baptized now without acknowledging and saying, I, I swear to, you know, you know, I take my oath to the 28? I mean, isn't that really what happens now? You have to go through all 28 and you have to basically do a, t- a, a, a attestation to your loyalty to the 28. Rather than your loyalty to Christ primarily. And unfolding truth. This is, uh, this is what it says out of Desire of Ages, page 86. Christ was not exclusive, and he had given special, and he had given special offense to the Pharisees by departing in this respect from their rigid rules. He found the domain of religion fenced in by high walls of seclusion as too sacred a matter for everyday life. These walls of partition he overthrew. In his contact with men, he did not ask, What is your creed? To what church do you belong? He exercised his helping power in behalf of all who needed help. Do you see, the, the danger is a danger suggested here. In fact, not just suggested, described. 
that he confronted and had to face and deal with. There were creeds laid down that became dividing walls that obstructed the flow of love and helping each other. Um, He didn't ask, what day do you worship on? What food do you eat? What atonement model do you ascribe to? What city are you from? from? Um, He lived God's law of love. And creeds have the risk of causing division. Have you ever known a Seventh-day Adventist who was afraid to associate with somebody who goes to church on Sunday? Have you ever? I, I, I have. Yeah, have you ever not? Maybe that's a better question. Yeah, and why? Why would you be afraid? It's a creed. Well, you know, we've been had this dividing line. Should we? Should we not see all humanity as God's children in need of his saving grace? And, and we could just push that farther. How many people in other denominations shrink back from associating with people of other denominations for the same reason? It's not just exclusive to this organization. Here's one, Zara of Ages 241. Oh how, oh, how Christ longed to open to Israel the precious treasures of truth. But such was their spiritual blindness that it was impossible to reveal to them the truths relating to his kingdom. They clung to their creed and their useless ceremonies when the truth of heaven awaited their acceptance. What's being described as the, as the problem with the creed? Yes. Well, from my own experience, when you ask that question, have you ever known anybody? That was me. I was raised very much that way. That was very much me. I would have been terrified to be left alone in a room with, say, a Catholic. But I think the problem with that is um, we, we're afraid. Because we don't really know what we believe and it doesn't really totally make sense to us, we're afraid to put it up against other belief systems. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really grateful for experiencing in these last few years is that fear is gone. I'm happy to talk to anybody about my belief and hold it up to their belief and compare it and see where we agree and where we disagree. But I think that basic insecurity, when something doesn't totally make sense and you know you can't really defend it, you don't want to be challenged. Yeah, other, other thoughts? Yes. That's another, see, this is another danger of outlining a creed or a set of fundamentals is that it can become so traditional, it becomes habitual, it becomes done by rote. If you look at the children of Israel, they were given by God a, if you want to call it a creed, a set of fundamentals, a very strict list of all these things. And if you then read the the later prophets, Isaiah, Amos, uh, and others, um, uh, Micah and others, you find that, that the prophets are coming and criticizing them because these things that God gave them are now just simply being done by rote. They, they have standalone beliefs. These beliefs somehow have atonement value in, in them and in, in and of doing themselves and, and they're disconnected from God. And this is the danger when we have these types of beliefs that we disconnect them from God and somehow if we just do the Sabbath, if we just pay our tithe, if we just hold to the right beliefs, somehow that gives us security because we've got the right beliefs, we've got the truth. And it's dangerous. Yes? What bothers me when I look in the book, the 28 beliefs from the Adventist Church, there is so much in that book that is based on people's personal opinion. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, this is why we have, uh, we appreciate the people Genesis Road for making this, and we have purchased 20,000 of these to share because what these are, fundamental focus, have taken all 28 fundamental beliefs and connected them back to how each belief is important and how it reveals to you the truth about God's character of love. That's what their purposes are. So this 28 will ultimately have as a thread that goes through the whole thing, God is love, God is love, God is love. Here's the methods here, I've shown. And you can see it in all 28. So we've got some of those out there you can take with you and share if you'd like. Oh, and I forgot another announcement. I'll just go ahead and make it now. Um, we have our new uh, little cards out there you can take and share that tell people uh, that how to watch us live because we're live webcasting now. So you've got those out there to take and share with your friends. Okay, um, So in the last paragraph of the introduction, it says it well. This is what it says. Doctrine then are not, doctrines then are not as an end in and of themselves. They are a means to an end, and that end is Jesus. Knowing Jesus for ourselves and growing in him. That's, that's well said. And that is really the, 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 the purpose of a doctrine, is to lead us back to a relationship with Christ. All right, let's jump into um, our lesson.
And the lesson uh, for the first lesson is titled The Great Controversy, The Foundation. When you hear the, uh, the, the title, The Great Controversy, what, what comes to your mind? Warfare. Warfare. Conflict. Red books. Red books. <laughs> okay. Seven day Adventist. Okay. So here's, as we go through the lesson, here's some questions to keep in mind. And you may already know the answers to every one of these as I just throw them out at you, but here's some questions. What is the con- controversy about or over? What's the central issue? Okay, good. You can throw them out if you know them. Character of God. It's about God. Um, is it about who has the most power? No. Is it fought with physical arms or might? No. Where is the battleground fought? What are the weapons employed? Lies on one side. Eyes on ideas. What's the, what's the truth? Truth. Those are some of the weapons. They're not all the weapons, but think that and keep it, keep keep searching for them. Who are the chief antagonists? Who are the chief antagonists? How does Satan win? How does God win? In other words, if you're strategically thinking, well, what would Satan have to do to, to win his war? What would God have to do to win his war? Those are harder, aren't they? Yeah. How do you fit in to this war? Where's your role? Whose side do you want to be on? Whose side are you actually on? How can you tell? Those are the questions to keep in mind as we go through, as we think about this. Memory text says, I will put, this is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between, her seed and your, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Any thoughts about that? Winner and a loser there. Winner and a loser. Okay. Well, the first thought, of course, is the context. When was it given? Who was it said to? <laughs> said to the serpent. In what context? In what place? So this is a promise. This is a promise of hope. Hey, mankind is not lost. And it was also a promise to the serpent that you haven't won. You haven't won. There's a day coming. There's a day coming. And if you think that, keep that in mind. If we get to it in Tuesday's lesson, we'll come back to this. But keep that in mind because this text is a landscape for understanding the entire Old Testament. The landscape, right there, boom, it lays it out for you. If you think about this controversy issue, think about it. Satan gets the word, hey, there's a, there's, there's a Messiah coming. There's the seed of the woman is going to come and crush you. What's Satan do? Kicking his recliner for 4,000 years waiting for that day? Or does he go get busy to do whatever he can to try and stop it? Now, was there a strategy he could stop it by? If, if, he, could, if he could achieve it, would it prevent Christ from coming? Destroy those knowledge of God. What would the stress? She says, destroy those with the knowledge of God. Destroy them and or convert every person to his side. If every human being on planet Earth, 100% of human beings, closed their heart completely to God, would God force a woman against her will to be the vessel for his incarnation? No. This was his strategy, and you can see at one place, the avenue for the Messiah coming became very narrow. There was one righteous man left on the Earth. That was it, just one. And so when you understand this is the backdrop and without the Messiah coming, the whole human race is lost, it gives you a, a lens through which to understand a lot of what's happening in the Old Testament. A lot of what's happening. Why is God acting in these ways in the Old Testament to put people into the grave? Why did he not do that after Christ came? And we got just as much wickedness go on, going on. Gives you insight. Because he had to keep open the avenue for Messiah. Satan's trying to kill everybody and shut everybody down who would ever cooperate with Christ with the coming of the Messiah. Um, the introduction of the quarterly talked about the power, um, talked about power and, and, and what we believe, the power of what we believe. Satan's power is in his lies. Um, what do you think Adam and Eve's sin was? What was the sin of Adam and Eve, I put it that way? Taking the fruit or believing lies about God which resulted in distrust and subsequent taking of the fruit? This is what uh, this was out of a review in Herald, January 5, 1886. When we speak of unbelief, we do not mean a person believes nothing. The mind must rest upon something, and when it does not grasp truth, it lays upon error. This is a principle in any subject matter. It doesn't matter religion or not. As I said before, in here, if you go outside and I point to the sky and say, "Hey, that's blue," 
Sky's blue. I get a, 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 way, a, a meter that measures the wavelength of light, and I measure the wavelength of light, and I give you the actual the, the wavelength of light being refracted off the atmosphere right now, and I give that to you as well. Are you still free to reject that and say, I don't believe it? Yes. And once you reject the truth, what's the only thing left for you to believe? You can believe it's pink, you can believe it's orange, you can believe it's gray. You believe, it doesn't matter. Once you reject truth, everything else is a lie. This is the point here. Your mind has to rest on something. If you don't rest on truth, it's going to rest on lies. This is the point. And on any subject matter. All men in one sense believe, and the effect produced upon the heart and character is in accordance to the things believed. See, your beliefs change you. That's what I said earlier. We have power what we believe, but what we believe holds power over us. Eve believed the words of Satan, and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and husband. They were changed from good and obedient children to transgressors, and it was only by repentance toward God and faith in the promised Messiah that they could hope to ever regain, what do you think? Listen to this. Regain the lost image of God. Not regain eternal life. Not, not gain pardon for their sins. Not gain a payment on their books in heaven. Gain a restoration of the image of God within. And this is out of First Elective Message 346. Through belief in Satan's misrepresentation of God. So what's going on here? We're believing a lie about God. Man's character and destiny were changed. But if men will believe the word of God, they will be transformed in mind and character and fitted for eternal life. And notice again what's being described here. Believe in a lie, change the character of mankind into fear-based, selfish-based beings. Belief and trust in God will result in transformation of character back to godliness. So do those two quotes have any scripture? Hopefully you ha- your computers are going and your brain started kicking out a whole bunch of scriptures like... 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that the war we wage is over the knowledge of God and we destroy everything, demolish all those things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Or Romans 1, 18 through 32, where Paul says five times they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchanged the knowledge of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. And, their, and what was the consequence? Their minds became darkened, futile, and depraved. You see, believing lies about God destroys the mind. Or John 17, 3, life eternal is that they might... Have your sins pardoned and legal payment made? No. no. That you might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and thou was met. Thou was sent. Uh, John 8.32, you know the truth. The truth will set you free. Where does truth have its power? In the mind to destroy what? Lies. It destroys lies. Or Isaiah 1.18, come let us reason, come and reason, come let us reason together, that your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Reasoning with God is cleansing to the mind and heart. Sunday's lesson. First paragraph reminds us there are radically different views regarding the conflict and what, what the conflict is about. Who's involved and what's at stake and how is it going to end. So what are some of the different views of this great controversy conflict? Any, anybody want to throw in a, something out different? The yin and the yang. The yin and the yang. Good and evil are not opposites and against each other, but two sides of the same energy required for balance in the universe. There is no individual evil or good beings opposing each other. Every living being contains both good and evil in balance, and thus the en- in the end, the, uh, there's an eternity in which good and evil exist together in balance for all eternity. This is a concept is called eternal dualism. This is Satan's dream for good and evil to exist together forever. But the Bible teaches that there was a time in eternity past where there was no evil. That evil arose or originated in a being known as Lucifer who became Satan and spread to earth. And that there's a future which will arrive in which evil will again be exterminated from the universe. The entire universe will be in harmony with God again, a perfect place. So the question, how has the idea of eternal dualism, the eternal existence of both good and evil, infected Christianity? Immortal souls that suffer in hell forever with the devil who's in hell forever. We have a universe in which we have eternal good and eternal evil. Or a different view. That's one way. There's another way. God is the source of inflicted suffering and pain and execution. So good and evil exist eternally in the heart of God who punishes and destroys those who rebel against him. 
both of these constructs teach it the same foundation as Eastern philosophies of an eternal existence of good and evil. And this is how Christianity has embraced this construct. It's one of the reasons why Christianity is so vulnerable to the influence of Eastern meditation practices that has happened, because the, the landscape of eternal evil naturally results in fear and anxiety. Buddha was, had significant fear of death. And how he dealt with his fear of death is that he went into transcendental meditation. And in transcendental meditation, you activate the right side of your brain and you suppress activity in the left side of your brain. And this actual experience, the left side of your brain is where you reason, think, organize, plan, strategize. Right side of your brain is where you experience connections with people and things around you. And in transcendental meditation, the, the left side of the brain is suppressed and right side of the brain is active. And you get this sense of a loss of individuality, a loss of, of, uh, of a sense of self and a connection with the cosmos and universe around you. And it's a freeing of, of one's self from it's almost as if you leave your body and you're kind of floating in some transcendental state of enlightenment or nirvana and the fear of personal disintegration and death is gone. And so Buddha dealt with his fear of death by transcendental meditation and this is what is taught in Eastern philosophies and this is why it's entering into Christianity because Christianity has a, has a, has a teaching, a landscape which there will always be evil and it cites fear, fear of death, fear of the future and how do we run from that or get from that fear? We do these types of meditation to bring peace and we, and we have less fear. Interesting, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches something completely different. When Christ was confronted with death, he did not run into a self-induced halfway hypnotic transcendental state. He confronted death, and it says in 2 Timothy that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. He overcame death by, by perfect self-sacrificing love in which he surrendered self to others. And the Christian uh, journey, according to Scripture, is that we are to come to that point, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in which we come to the point where we die to self. We face the fear of death in our own heart. We surrender self in trust to Christ, and we die. And you, you see this in Peter after his denial, in David when Nathan confronted him, in Jacob uh, uh, on his night of wrestling with the angel, that, that this conversion experience isn't a time where we run away from this, this conviction of guilt that our consciences bring us. It's a time when we face it in God's grace and surrender self, die to self, and experience renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's a completely different process. In the uh, paragraph um, in Sunday's lesson, at the uh, bottom, it talks about uh, cultures. Let's see here. Um, Yeah, last paragraph. It says, in fact, while secularism has taken many shapes and forms over the last two centuries, nothing characterizes secularism more than a push to eliminate all the otherworldly language from human discourse. With the success of science, people in some cultures are more and more inclined to think about issues scientifically. Angels and demons are not fair... Uh, uh, do not fare well in the scientific mode of thinking. How can you present angels and demons to a scientific mind? And they'll go, okay. Just to substitute angels and demons with the word extraterrestrials. What are angels? They're beings that don't come from Earth. Right? What are demons? Beings that didn't originate on Earth. Just say, hey, these are extraterrestrials. Some are motivated by love and, and concern and support. Some are actually trying to destroy us. Have you, have you misrepresented the truth in saying that? Is it about what you call angels or is it about the character of God, his methods versus those methods of selfishness on the other side? So you, can, you don't have to get all, well, angels are real. No, how about extraterrestrials? They buy into that like this. <laughs> they do. Yes, that's on the other hand. Yes. It implies in this paragraph that this is becoming less common, yet we see more about um, angels and demons and... and zombies and all sorts of uh, supernatural phenomena now that we did at some other time. Yeah, exactly. We do. Actually, in some, in some, yeah, it's, it's both both ways, doesn't it? And I think what's happening is there's a merging between supernatural spiritualism of the demonic with the supernatural science of intelligent beings that are extraterrestrials using supernatural scientific um, alternate realities, um, uh, time dilation and time distortion, um, these types of things. Where we, we're, we're in a phase distortion where we're just slightly out of phase and, and all these different scientific explanations for the demonic as well. They're merging. Yeah. Going back to the discussion about um, God containing both good and evil, but we um, often see the portrayal of Christ coming the first time as a lamb. 
and the second time as a lion. And that implies also a difference of character. It does, doesn't it? Is it? Or was he described in the Old Testament as the lion of the tribe of Judah? And in Revelation as the lamb. And in Revelation as the lamb. So we've got that description consistent. Yeah, but it can be, it depends on which lens you're looking through, doesn't it? Yeah. Monday's lesson. Um, talking about the fall, Lucifer's fall. Uh, what led to Lucifer's fall? Pride. 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 Um, there's the, I'm going to jump through a couple of these pretty quick because there's some other points I want to get to. But the lesson uses the, the phrase uh, in the bottom half of the lesson that it was um, pride, autonomy, and independence were the issues. The three issues raised were pride, autonomy, and independence. And I, I, I actually hear autonomy and independence differently than they may be hearing it. I, I would rather substitute, because I hear autonomy and independence is freedom. Love cannot exist in a universe of freedom. If we don't have independence, if we don't have autonomy, if we're robots, if we're slaves, if we're puppets, then love doesn't exist. So autonomy and independence are essential for love. But what I may be hearing, and I would like to substitute, maybe they mean this, is pride, um, rebellions and defiance. Pride, rebellion, and defiance rather than independence and autonomy. Yes? But would it be wrong for an astronaut who's up in a space station to say, I want pride and independence and go out on their own without a tether uh, of a lifeline? Yeah, um, see, it's, it's, now, now you've just, and this is the point I was, yeah, great point, and that is we do have autonomy and independence in all of our choices, we're just not free of the natural consequences of those choices when they go against God's design protocols for life. So if the, what you just described, he's free. and He can absolutely do that. He has freedom and autonomy to make that choice. But he's not free of the consequences of making that choice. He's not suddenly free of his need for oxygen. You see? But he's free to go out in the place where there is none. Is he, is he not? Yeah. So what is then this, the restraining power? God's imposed punishment. You better not go out or I'll beat you. Or the design protocols of life. So in the end, why will there be no more wickedness? Because God has an angel with a flaming sword on every corner of the New Jerusalem? Is that why? Or because God actually gives freedom, ultimate freedom and independence to every being and those who have chosen with their freedom to separate themselves from him receive their choice and they're eternally separated from their source of life and they step outside the protocols upon which God built life to operate and what exists out there? What exists outside the protocols that God built life to operate upon? Death or nothing. And so that's what happens, nothingness. They achieve their choice of nothingness. This is why the universe will be cleansed. How did Lucifer get a third of the angels to follow him? Lies. Lies about? Hey, we did a lot of gold in the streets up here. We cut this up. We can really make a lot on the black market. Is that, is that, hey, look at those gates. Of, those, are, those are the biggest pearls I've ever seen on those gates. I mean, we could really, we, we steal those gates. We could really sell make a lot. Is this, is this how he got the angels? Did, did he set up a heavenly drug cartel? <laughs> A heavenly uh, uh, porn video site. No, all the stuff that we call sin, that was nothing for them. It was, it was nothing. It was about one thing. You can't trust God. God's lied. It was about one thing. You can't trust him. And so, this is out of uh, Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. It says, Christ came to save fallen man, and Satan, with fiercest wrath, met him on the field of conflict. For the enemy knew that when divine strength was added to human weakness, man was armed with power and intelligence. I like that, and intelligence. And could break away from the captivity which had bound him. Think that through. What is it that binds us? What's our captivity? We're going to be armed with something that's going to break us away. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light coming from the throne of God. So what's Satan trying to do? What's his strategy? Destroy the light. Destroy the light. When light's a metaphor for photons? Truth. Truth, yeah. Um, He sought to cast his shadow across the earth that men might lose the true views of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become extinct on earth, just like we we quoted out of Romans a moment ago. 
uh, he had caused truths of vital importance to be so mixed, mingled with error that it lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father, to correctly represent him before the fallen children of earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was a living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way in which he could set and keep men right was to make a payment to their account in heaven. No, the only way was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That was the only way. We had to have the lies about God destroyed. Think about this. Your spouse has not cheated, but somebody's lied and told you your spouse has cheated. You've believed the lie. You've now, you've now moved out. You don't want to even get near to your spouse, but your spouse loves you and your spouse wants you back. And your spouse knows you've been a victim of a liar. What will your spouse need to do to get you back? Kill the liar? If, if they kill the liar, will that get you back? No. So what will the spouse need to do? Discredit the liar. Re, by how do you discredit the liar? Evidence. Evidence of what specifically? <laughs> of what specifically? Your trustworthiness. So you've done nothing wrong, but yet you're on trial and you've got to prove yourself if you want your spouse back. This is the great controversy. This is why it says in Romans, Paul says in Romans, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. May you win when you reveal the truth about yourself. And, and, and the trial is going on in your mind. Do you trust him? Which version of God do you really believe is true? Where's that quote from? That was uh, Signs of the Times, uh, January 20, 1890. Now, question. Do you notice one of the allegations is God's arbitrary? What does the word arbitrary mean? I've got, I looked it up in the dictionary again. <laughs> okay, here's what it means. Three definitions. First, depending on individual discretion and not fixed by law. In other words, natural law, not fixed by law. Um, <clears throat> marked, this is the second one, marked by re, or resulting from the unrestrained and often tyrannical use of power. Third, it has an A and a B. A, based on or determined by individual preference or convenience rather than by necessity or intrinsic nature of something. And B, on 3B, existing or coming about seemingly at random or by chance as a capriciousness uh, and unreasonable act of will. That's arbitrariness. There's no reason, no purpose, just random. Because I prefer it, it's my whim, I'll just do it. I've got the power, I don't care. That's arbitrariness. Now, how do we see the allegation that God is arbitrary in Christianity today? The Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. It's a lie. But it's common. How about... God is required to inflict punishment. Not a natural result. He does it because he's offended. He's got the tyrannical use of power and he's going to make you, make you pay. How about God said it, I believe it, that settles it. There's no reason just because God said it. God said it, that's it. God's way or the highway. Once saved, always saved. So what happens when we use methods that are severe, exacting, and arbitrary in relationship. This is, uh, this is um, what Ellen White wrote to a particular person in the church 100 years ago. It's a personal letter written to a particular man. And listen to this and see if you've ever seen this in our day and time. Brother M, you have not taken a judicious course with your family. Your children do not love you. They have more hatred than love. Your wife does not love you. You do not, you do not take a course to be loved. You are an extremist. You are severe, exacting, arbitrary to your children. You, take the, you, take, you talk the truth to them, but you do not carry its principles into your everyday life. You are not patient, forbearing, and forgiving. You have so long indulged your own spirit... You are so ready to fly into a personal passion, if provoked, that it looks exceedingly doubtful whether you will make effort sufficient to meet the mind of Christ. What did you hear being dis... It's pretty harsh. 
But what did you hear? There's the process going on here. And she's describing testable laws. When you're harsh, severe, arbitrary, exacting to people in a relationship, does love grow? Destroy love. This is what she's describing. This is a law called the law of liberty we've talked about before. If you violate freedoms, if you're harsh, severe, exacting, arbitrary, love cannot grow. This is not a surprise that the kids and the wife don't love this man. Have you seen this in Christianity? I've seen this. It's horrible. It's horrible. This is why we did a, we did a program here some months back on domestic violence in the church. And about how, how is it that pastors and elders and church leaders can beat their wives? How can they do that? Because they have a God who's severe, exacting, and arbitrary. And you become like that and you practice those methods. So what will happen if we worship a God who's severe, exacting, and arbitrary? What happens to our love? We will be sealed. We'll be sealed, yes. All right, Wednesday's lesson. Let's jump. This is the, maybe getting some fun stuff now. Wednesday's lesson. Um, first two paragraphs start in the middle. It says, God worked through the patriarchal and uh, Israelite sanctuary service, through Christ's sac- sacrificial atoning death, through the church, and through Christ's own ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Satan, however, has worked tirelessly to try to undermine the Lord's plans. So much of the great controversy has been and is now fought out over these very issues. Is the lesson saying that there's a battle going on over what God has given as teaching tools and what they're supposed to, to mean to us, how they're supposed to enlighten us, and, and there's, a, there's an evil one who is trying to twist the meaning of that so that we misunderstand and draw wrong conclusions. Is that what that lesson's saying? I think that's what I heard it say. So how has the sanctuary been misrepresented? Uh, that the blood of animals atones for sin? Do you know that it's common in Christianity that, they, that many Christians believe in the Old Testament that it was the animal's blood that atoned for sin in the Old Testament? That's a common teaching. Did animal's blood ever atone for sin? Come on. If it did, why would Christ ever have to come? Purposeless. Uh, that God requires sacrifice and appeasement or propitiation of his anger and wrath. That's the way it's been misrepresented. That the barrier between God and man is God's inability to look upon sin or God's wrath and anger. That's the barrier. By the way, we talked about the fundamentals on page 111 and the 27 fundamental beliefs because I got the old one. I don't have the new 28. I've still got the old one, the 27. I haven't updated. So (laughs) anyway, yeah, I haven't gotten my update. Yeah. Anyway, but on page 111 in the old book, it says that, um, that the barrier between God and man is God's wrath. And that Christ came to remove the barrier in that he took God's wrath upon himself. That was somebody's opinion. It wasn't a voted position, by the way. It was somebody's opinion expounding on it. Um, That the plan of salvation is a marketplace transaction. One member of the Godhead bribing or paying off another member of the Godhead with his blood. That's another way that Satan misrepresents what Christ has done. That there is a smoke-filled building in heaven in which Christ lights incense and mixes it with our prayers and pleads to his Father to be merciful to us. This is a way it's misrepresented. That there's a golden chest in heaven with the stone tablets carved from rocks of earth with ten commandments on them. Does anybody really believe there's a physical gold chest in heaven with rock from earth with ten commandments carved on them? If you do, you've you've misunderstood the whole thing. That when God attempts to look at our records, Jesus intervenes and obstructs his view by by replacing what is recorded in our records with his records. This is another way it's been distorted. That a committee sits in heaven and reviews the sins of the wicked and votes on how long each person must burn in the flames before they're executed. These are all distortions of what the truth is. And the last paragraph reminds us about a heavenly sanctuary, and um, it tells us to read Hebrews uh, 9.24, which says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We're all familiar with this, Hebrews 9.24. I'm going to go really fast because we're going to be low on time here in just a minute. Do you think 2 Corinthians 5.1 has any bearing on this? Because this is what it says in 2 Corinthians. It's a sanctuary in heaven not made with human hands. And 2 Corinthians 5.1 um, somebody look that up and read it for Oh, here it goes. It says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Connection? No connection. Hmm. Is the sanctuary in heaven 
built out uh, that is not built with human hands, constructed out of inanimate materials like stone, gold, pearls, wood, silver, platinum, or is it constructed out of living beings? See, created beings can build inanimate buildings. Only God can create living beings. Does the following passage have any bearing? Ezekiel 28, 14 through 18. Listen to this. It's going to give you the, the, the in fact, I won't read the whole thing because we're running low on time, but it's describing Lucifer as the covering cherub and about how sin was found within him and how he's the gardening and how he was thrown out of the fiery stones of God's presence. And then in verse 18, it says, by your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made fire come out from you and, cons- and it consumed you and I reduced you to ashes in sight of all who were watching desecrated your sanctuaries. Or how about this one? Put this one together. Revelation 2, 8, 9. These are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. No, what's the Revelation saying is a synagogue of Satan? People. Is that connected to the sanctuaries of Satan that he's desecrated? Has he desecrated the hearts and minds of created beings? Hmm. Well, this is out of uh, Christian Experience and Teaching, page 207. It's written by Ellen White. Satan has a large confederacy, his church. Christ calls them the synagogue of Satan because the members are the children of sin. The members of Satan's church have been constantly working to cast off the divine law and confuse the distinctions between good and evil. Satan is working with great power in and through the children of disobedience to exalt treason and apostasy as truth and loyalty. And at this time, the power of his satanic inspiration is moving the living agencies to carry out the great rebellion against God. What is the synagogue of Satan built out of? People. Hmm. What do you think the heavenly sanctuary is built out of? The place where God wants to dwell. The place where the living creator wants to dwell. Does he want to dwell in a building made out of inanimate materials? Or do he want to dwell in the hearts and minds of his his people? I won't go through all the texts I went through about two or three weeks ago. Where I went through a long list of scripture that talks about, don't you know that you're a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Or that you're living stones built together in a house for the Lord? Or that that Christ is the chief cornerstone and the apostles are the foundation and we're all built together into a house? Or Desire of Ages, page 161, it talks about Christ mission when he cleansed the temple sanctuary in Jerusalem, we announced his mission to cleanse the soul from sin and that every intelligent being was created by God to be a dwelling place for the Lord, a temple for the Lord. (laughs) Satan wants to direct us away from the high calling that you were created to be. You were created to be a dwelling place where God will dwell by his spirit within you. You were created to be a place where there is at one Unity, atonement, where the law, in the Old Testament system, the law is written where? And in in, in contained where? In the most holy place, in a, in a casket. Okay? In a case, in a little... In a, where is it in the New Testament? I'll write my law where? In your heart and mind. It's in your heart and mind. That's where it is. This is the most holy place where Christ wants to dwell in your heart and mind by reproducing his character within you. And in closing, I'm going to go really fast. I wanted to get to this on Thursday's lesson. In Thursday's lesson, it wants us to look at, uh, and it mentions Revelation 12 and 13, and it talks about the third angel's message. The third angel's message, um, and I'm just going to, I wish we had time to say, can anyone tell me in plain language what it means? The three angels, what they mean? Revelation, um, well, here, here, here's my version, kind of, I just kind of threw this out off my head as I meditated on it this week. It says, a first messenger from God came with a message to admire God and reveal his true character of love in your life. To remember him who created all things and the principles upon which life was designed to operate, the law of love, the principle of giving, which reveals God's true character of love because the hour in which he will be judged has come. A second messenger from God came saying, do what the first angel said because the churches have fallen into Satan's lie about God and teach an imposed law construct in which God is the imposer of law and the imposer of penalties. A being represented as arbitrary and severe and have made all the nations drink, think, this, uh, think God is like this. A third messenger came and said, 
If anyone agrees with this beastly picture of God or practices such monstrous methods, their characters will be permanently warped and they will experience the full force of their choice when God returns and they are bathed in the fire of his presence. Then unremedied sin will not be restrained and they will be tormented and consumed in the presence of the angels and the Lamb. And the memory of their choice and how unremedied sin tortures and kills will be recalled by the saved forever and ever. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love, a God of truth, a God of freedom, a God who has provided everything we need to step out of the bondage of distortion, of fear, of, uh, of false ideas about you, of sel- out of selfishness. Lord, we, we ask that your spirit will come and dwell in your spirit temple. Bring us the truth. Bring us the light of heaven. Uh, fill our hearts with your love. Remove the fear. Give us the ability to share the truth about your kingdom with others, that we may grow in your likeness, that we may see you face to face, and this world may be lighted soon. We pray for, for specifically the ministry that, that you will open avenues for this message to be taken forward. You'll bring people who love you and love this perspective to, to share this all over the world, that, that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.